You're listening to the Theology for the Church podcast with Dr. Caleb Leonard, a resource for the church that aims to help Christians explore how Christian doctrine, framed by the biblical story, is to be applied to the Christian life in the context of the local church. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Theology for the Church podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Steve Wellam, Professor of Christian Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, to discuss the topic of progressive covenantalism as a theological system. Dr. Wellam's the author of numerous essays, articles, and books, perhaps most notably his co-authored work with Peter Gentry, Kingdom Through Covenant and God the Son Incarnate, the Doctrine of the Person of Christ. He also serves through regular writing and podcasting and editing for a newer but excellent online resourcing ministry, Christ Overall. Dr. Wellam, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me for this conversation. Caleb, a great delight to be with you today. Before we jump into specific questions about our topic, would you just mind sharing a little bit more about yourself for our listeners? How did you get where you are today? maybe a little bit about family and educational background and, and church ministry involvement, those type of things. Sure. Yeah, I'll try to keep it short because the older I get, there's more to say, isn't there? So, uh, no, I grew up, sure. in, I, I grew up in Canada, uh, so uh, not everyone knows, you know, all the geography of Canada. So just outside, we'll say the Toronto area, halfway between uh, Buffalo, New York, and uh, Toronto, um, about 45 minutes from Niagara Falls. So I grew up in a in a in a wonderful Christian home, wonderful Christian parents. Um, uh, attended uh, at a very early age uh, Reformed Baptist Church, and a faithful pastor that actually uh, originally came from England, uh, William Payne, Bill Payne, and uh, really was converted at sixteen. Just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian, but uh, yeah. just all of the instruction and teaching and uh, faithful Bible exposition. So I, I was very, very privileged uh, indeed. And uh, the Lord uh, saved me at uh, 16, saw my own need for him and salvation and Christ alone and faith alone. And uh, after that, uh, you know, finished high school, but really felt a calling to uh, to go into some kind of Christian ministry. Obviously, I didn't know exactly what that would look like, and I um, uh, wanted to go to seminary then, but I thought I need to get a, a, a undergrad degree first, so headed off to uh, the United States, went to a small Christian liberal arts school, Roberts Wesleyan College in Upper State, New York, did a science degree, just trying to balance you know, or, or provide some variety to what I would then get at seminary, and then went off sure. to uh, met my wife. Uh, future wife there as uh, she was studying nursing, got married uh, after college and then headed to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and had really wonderful years uh, doing a master's doctorate there. And uh, the Lord, after I was finishing up my uh, theology training at uh, Trinity, uh, pastored in South Dakota with the Evangelical Free Church for four years as I was finishing up. That was just a wonderful uh, experience. And, you know, I was young, about 28 or so, and, and just being putting into practice what I had been learning and working with the local church and growing in love with the local church and the importance of the local church. And then the Lord moved me to um, our family to uh, the British Columbia area, Trinity Western University, uh, outside of Vancouver, Langley, British Columbia, taught there at a seminary, the Associated Canadian 
theological schools for uh, for three years, and then uh, the Lord brought me to Southern Seminary, 1999. So I've been here a long time, and uh, and really have enjoyed my time here teaching and. And the great, uh, the great advantage at, at Southern was uh, I could be at home. Like a lot of the different institutions, there's always sure. some little differences on baptism and and a few uh, doctrinal issues. But uh, Southern, you know, felt at home because of our our commitment to Baptist theology, Scripture, and in uh, mostly a Reformed understanding of of theology in the world. Um, I've been married now for 38 years, and uh, we have five children, and now five grandchildren, and uh, they're all all the children out of the home. The last one was married uh, last October, so that's that's sort of a bit of my my family history. I've taught uh, systematic theology uh, all this time, and and really see it as uh, you know the culminating kind of discipline that puts together uh, the whole Bible, and that's why. You know, I've been interested in in theological systems and viewpoints and how the Bible fits together. And that's what, uh, you know, has in my teaching, thinking through, you know, how do we think through the whole canon? How do the covenants work? And that's what led to Peter Gentry and I thinking through and writing kingdom through covenant and and so on. And I've also specialized in um, in areas because the whole Bible ultimately leads us to Jesus, uh, you know, areas of Christology, person, work and and so on so that's it's just been a joy and honor to train people uh, for christian ministry uh, such a important task in our day uh, the importance of the local church strong local churches faithful uh, bible pastors and ministers of the gospel and um, uh, continue to do uh, to really feel the the burden to do that well and and to do that at, at southern seminary yeah no that's that's great i, I really appreciate you sharing that with us and you know, most of our, our listeners are, are probably somewhat familiar with you, and uh, but I appreciate you sharing that uh, with us. And, and maybe to kind of jump into the conversation now, uh, Dr. Willem, to start us off here, before I ask you to kind of give us a brief sketch of or an overview of progressive covenantalism, would you just help us understand why maybe in general theological systems are important, helpful, necessary even for uh, doing theology and interpreting scripture accurately, because we, we all come to the biblical text with uh, s- some presuppositions, right, or kind of preloaded assumptions and convictions, some of them even, you know, subconscious ones. So so maybe let's, let's start our conversation here. Yeah. Well, we have to admit we do. We all come from different backgrounds, and uh, there are uh, assumptions and presuppositions that affect how we do. So we're not you can never be sort of just naive to say, well, I see it perfectly and, and no one else, uh, you know, gets it uh, type of thing because we, yeah. we do we do come from backgrounds and baggage and so on. But we're also convinced, and of course this is against some of the sort of current hermeneutical tendencies and, and this type of thing to say uh, that uh, when we affirm sola scriptura, scripture as our final authority, that it's an objective revelation that can correct even our assumptions. So that uh, with the work of the Spirit and uh, tied to uh, the reading of the text, that uh, we can correct our assumptions, and especially in conversation with other people and uh, looking at other viewpoints and so on. So it's very important to realize that uh, we all have assumptions, but we need to put our our views to the test and that Scripture is our final authority and can correct uh, even our 
assumptions that we have, right? We don't have to be locked into that, even though it's not easy often to uh, sometimes overcome some of our, our background. And theological mm-hmm. systems are so important because, I mean, in many ways, it's, 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 it's how we understand the whole Bible, right? So theological systems at their heart, right? They're not just sort of systems that we're imposing on the Bible. I mean, we can mm-hmm. do that. But I don't think anybody who is thinking through covenant theology, whether from a Westminster or, you know, a, a tra- classically uh, covenant view or a dispensational view or a, a Reformed Baptist view or a, what we're, we would say a progressive covenantal view is trying to impose on the Bible. We're trying to understand the Bible's own terms and how mm-hmm. the Bible itself uh, is put together. And because we are convinced, and it's really only orthodox uh, conservative believers that can actually do this. We, we believe that the Bible is a, is a unit, right? It, all of its diverse teaching, it, it still is a unit, right? It's God's yeah. word. And we then want to know how the parts fit with the whole. And that helps us then understand the whole counsel of God. And theological systems are crucial to help us do that. Now, we have to make sure we continually bring them back to Scripture and continually put them to the test, but it gives us the grand vision of what the whole Bible is teaching. And if we get uh, the whole counsel of God correct, then we will understand the parts, I think, better, right? And even understand Mm -hmm. the main emphasis of the Bible. You can go to the Bible and draw all kinds of conclusions, but if you're not doing that in the way the Bible itself is putting it together, you will make mistakes. So theological systems are important for us to, how does the Bible fit together, interaction with one another, so that we are bringing our mind and heart back to Scripture constantly. And so that's how they are functioning in our theology, and they're giving us really the big picture of what God's Word is teaching us and the the plan of God and the revelation of God. Yeah, and I think that's really, really helpful because they they also provide for those that, that do a lot of teaching, whether that's in the the church or elsewhere, really just some, some categories, some things to hang our, our hat on, some some guardrails and, and kind of guidelines for interpreting those those pieces and keeping uh, the the smaller pieces uh, in in canonical you know context and, and to be able to take the the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture, and kind of highlight. Uh, these really key things in the in the storyline and structure to help us really understand uh, what's what's taking place, no matter where we're at uh, in the Bible, and kind of keep us uh, hemmed in within um, orthodoxy. I think is is yep. what's really yep. uh, particularly helpful there. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and and God wants us to know the whole plan, right? I mean, he's he's given us the revelation so that we understand who he is and who we are. And uh, it's crucial. We can all often get lost in just the pieces of Mm -hmm. Scripture or the parts of Scripture. But unless we see the parts in light of the whole and vice versa, the whole helps us understand the parts, we inevitably will get the Scripture wrong. And of course, that's our concern is that we want to understand what God has revealed. Yeah, absolutely. So so now... And let's say roughly, I don't know, seven, eight minutes or so. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be tough to do. I, I understand. Can't say all that maybe could be said, right? right. Uh, but if you would, could you just give us kind of the basic overview or key tenets of uh, progressive covenantalism as a theological system? And then we'll kind of maybe un- unpack uh, some of that as as we go here. Sure. Yeah. Now, I mean, let me just begin by saying, I mean, when we 
lay out progressive covenantalism. Here's the theological system. We, we, there's so much agreement with just Christians in general, right? Uh, so that, uh, you know, we're talking at uh, specific points of, of differences that sort of uh, uh, where people, how, how they understand how the covenants and how the parts of Scripture fit with, with the whole. But, you know, progressive covenantalism is affirming historic Christianity, right? And that's our concern. We affirm everything from uh, the authority of Scripture to classic view of who God is from the Nicene creeds all the way through Christology, the Chalcedonian confessions, uh, you know, a, 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 we would say a reform view, a reformational view. We could even tie it back to Augustine, but I mean, a reformational view of sin, of divine grace, particularly a reformation view. Even Augustine is is confused on baptismal regeneration and so on tied to grace. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, a reformation view of, you know, effectual grace, God's sovereign grace, his, his uh, sovereign plan over all things. So, I mean, all of that is in agreement, especially with reformed classic covenant theology, reformed Baptist theology. Even many dispensationals obviously would agree with most of those major doctrines. There may be a bit more uh, Arminian tendencies when it comes to grace, sin, uh, and uh, election, and so on. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's, we have to say there's a lot of agreement. But where do we then, in terms of putting the Bible together— and again, even here, there's going to be a lot of similarity. It gets it, the differences uh, are seen in the details, right, and how mm-hmm. the parts are actually are worked out. But we would say, I would say this way: a good way of getting at progressive covenantalism is that we believe in the in the one eternal plan of God, right? So the triune God from all eternity has a plan. Uh, we tie that to his plan, his decree, that he now works out in creation, the fall, ultimately the plan of redemption and leading to consummation. Uh, so he has an eternal plan, and we can then get into later on, we could even tie that. I, I, I affirm with uh, Reformed theology that we could call that that eternal plan, particularly as it relates to salvation, the covenant of redemption. There's the covenant language has been used there. There's debate on whether that word covenant is best used there. Uh, I think it's fine uh, because it's pertaining to the covenants in history. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the divine decree, the divine plan, uh, that encompasses everything, particularly then salvation. And uh, that's really where the covenant of redemption comes in, the relation of the Father, Son, and Spirit to bring about the salvation of his people. So I affirm that. Then in terms of the outworking of that divine plan, that one plan of God gets unfolded through the covenants. So just think of the term progressive covenantalism. The covenants are the means by which uh, we have a relationship with God. Uh, So how we come into relationship with him, it's a covenantal relationship, and it's the means by which that relationship, ultimately distorted by sin, is brought to salvation and and consummation. And the progressive sense. Now, we have to be very careful today in terms of the term progressive because insurance companies (laughs) use it. uh, Politicians use it to speak of liberal politics or something like this. Progressive just simply picks up, which all Christians have to affirm, that there is an unfolding revelation. Mm-hmm. That God's revelation has come to us over time. Every Christian affirms that. It's, it's again, in the details where the differences lie. So we don't have the coming of Christ. That takes many years, thousands of years. Uh, so we have the unfolding revelation and the one plan of God now tied to his eternal decree, the covenant of redemption, now unfolds through the biblical covenants. 
It begins in creation, and we can call that, we call it a covenant of creation. Covenant of works is fine as well. It really is, amounts to the same thing that you'd find in covenant theology. And there's a distinction between pre-fall and post-fall. That's a crucial, crucial distinction. So what God is doing with Adam as the covenant head of the human race, right, is that he represents us. He is not in a glorified state. Uh, in his obedience, there would be glorification tied to the promise of God and God's condescension and giving uh, the covenant. But then there is a fall, and that initial promise of redemption begins in Genesis 3.15. That ultimately is the promise of the new covenant. And so you have that promise. So there's the same salvation from old to new. There's the same object of salvation, Christ himself. Uh, so all of that's in commonality with, uh, you know, historic Christian theology and even Reformed covenant theology. Uh, yet uh, we do not see that the covenant of grace, that, that phrase, the covenant of grace, is really a theological category, which is fine, but we don't see that it's a helpful category. If you mean to say, how does the one plan of redemption unfold, that's fine. But, but ultimately, that one plan of redemption is through plural covenants, right? So it unfolds post-fall through Noah. The promise of Genesis 3.15 continues through him. And then it continues through Abraham, it continues through Israel, and through the Mosaic Covenant, uh, through David, and then ultimately culminating in the coming of the New Covenant. And the entire plan of God now leads us to Christ and his people, right? So there's people of God, obviously, in the Old Testament. There's a continuity of, we'll talk about Israel Church, uh, yet there's also redemptive historical differences, covenantal differences. So the church is the people of the of the new covenant in the full sense of that, even though you can say Israel is the assembly or the assembled people, the church of God in, in the old, but there's, there's covenantal differences. Mm -hmm. So the one plan through the covenants coming to fulfillment in, in Christ and the new covenant, and that brings with it then that the new covenant is where all the plan is leading, right? It's, 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 it brings about differences from uh, Israel to church. It brings about differences uh, in, in covenant theology is spoken about a ministry, but it's more than just administrative differences, right? There is, there is, there is a sense in which uh, that previous covenant is type and shadow. It, uh, it, it leads to that which points forward to the new covenant, but the new covenant brings with it uh, the fullness of salvation in Christ. There's an already not yet. He's first coming, second coming. Yet there's the, the redeemed people of God, a believing remnant or believing church, uh, regenerate church. And of course, that will tie in uniquely to Baptist uh, theology as well, where we'll disagree with some of our Reformed uh, brethren, brothers and sisters on, on those particular issues. But that's sen some sense of the overview, right? And, and many Christians are going to agree uh, on that overall understanding. Yet it's the details. Uh, how does the covenant of grace fit? And how should we understand that in terms of the biblical covenants? And, and uh, you know, what's the role of Israel and, and, and so on. But that's the, in a nutshell, the basic point of it, right? So God's eternal plan unfolded now in creation, fall, redemption, but ultimately through the covenants, God is revealing himself. 
He's bringing us back post-fall, centered in the coming of Christ, the new covenant. So the Old Testament are real covenants, real relationships, but they ultimately are prophetic. They're anticipatory. They point forward to the coming of the new covenant. So there's the same salvation. There's the same Savior. Yet we would speak of in the coming of Christ in the new covenant, there's going to be change. There's going to be change in the in the people of God in the sense that it's going to be regenerate community that wasn't always the case in the old. There's going to be the same salvation, but there's going to be a greater sense of the indwelling of the Spirit, uh, the quality. I mean, the experience of God is greater. We have access to God where you had to go through tabernacles and temples in the old. So some of the type and shadow has come to reality in the new. So the new covenant is where all of God's plan is coming to its end uh, in the coming of Christ. And then we have to factor in the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the consummation of all things. And then in that larger scheme, then we talk about various specific things, even eschatological viewpoints and and uh, the role, mission of the church and what the church is and so on. So we could you know pick up on any of those points, but that's sort of the basic kind of overview. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you breaking that down for us. I think that's really, really helpful. And, you know, may, maybe to, to kind of play off of that a little bit, um, how does... Um, you know, fund it most fundamentally at a basic level. How does progressive covenantalism uh, understand, um, like you, you already talked about a little bit, the theological covenants of redemption, works, and grace, um, and, and just their interaction with uh, the historic covenants of, you know, with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David in the, in the new covenant? How do those, how did like the theological covenants and the historic covenants uh, work together? And, right. and how is progressive covenantalism kind of understand those differently than like a dispensational theology or, you know, a Westminster covenant theology? And we'll get to more of the Reformed Baptist in here right. in just a minute, but kind of those two polls there. Yeah, let's start with the uh, the Westminster Reformed position because there's, there's, there's a lot of commonality with it, but obviously mm-hmm. there's going to be some differences and particularly that will show up in our understanding of the church and then ordinances and particularly more Baptist convictions versus uh, Presbyterian reform convictions and, and, and so on. Right. So, so in, in the classic covenant theology there, the similarity would be uh, God's eternal plan, covenant of redemption in terms of our salvation, uh, the agreement in that sense, the covenant relation between the, the, the father, son and spirit and the father giving of a people to the son, the son accomplishing their salvation, the spirit now uh, applying that salvation. So all that's an agreement. Uh, in terms of uh, the covenant of creation, right? So both uh, ourselves and classic Westminster theology, Westminster Confession and so on begin with Adam. He, the most two most important people of the human race is Adam and Christ. And uh, Adam is the covenant head of all of humanity. Uh, he's not just the first biological man. He is the covenant representative of us. And he is created as a creature to obey God. That's uh, what else would uh, God want except full devotion, love, mm-hmm. obedience, service. Yet uh, there's also a covenant relationship. He's not just a creature, but he is a covenant creature as well. And God enters into relationship in, in Genesis 2 with, with Adam. There's a, there's a command and there's, I think, an implicit promise 
That's tied to the, the tree of life. So Adam was not, we know from the all of Scripture, he was not created in a glorified state. Uh, he was created in a good state. He was unfallen. Uh, yet he, uh, by the promise of God, if he were to continue in his obedience, there would be uh, a glorification that would occur, right? And we know that we'd have to, that kind of argument would come from our understanding of the whole of the Bible and what's now happened to us uh, in Christ. So all of that's similar. So they, uh, covenant theology is called that a covenant of works. Uh, we call it a covenant of creation. Basically, it's very similar. Uh, we've just tried to avoid with the notion of works, which Reformed theology does, uh, but the notion of sort of a merit, uh, sort of that you know Adam's not made in right relationship, but the basic content is very, very similar. Adam then sins and brings death and destruction to all of humanity. Uh, so his sin is now our sin, right? So imputation and then also fallenness that we have, pollution that we have. And uh, in Reformed thought, though, there is now the beginning of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. Uh, we do not, if, if we're talking at the theological level in the sense of the promise of redemption, uh, the promise of the plan of salvation, theologically that's correct, but there is no such thing biblically as the covenant of grace, right? It would have to tie back to God's eternal plan, tied back to the covenant of redemption. Mm -hmm. But all we have is the historic covenants. So this is where we are concerned that we allow the Bible on its own terms to to govern our theology, right? So the covenant of grace as a as a construct in the sense of a theological construct that's giving us the one plan of salvation, that's fine. We don't wouldn't disagree with that. We would ultimately argue that even in creation there's a proper sense of law and demand, right? So law gospel, gospels found yeah. in Genesis 3:15. All of that is reformational. We hold to that, but we differ with how we understand those historic covenants related to that one covenant of grace, because the tendency in covenant theology is to make the one covenant of grace, it's the one covenant that goes from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the historic covenants to its fulfillment in Christ, and it makes what they call the substance of that covenant the same, but the administration of it different. And there's a lot of truth in that. The problem, though, is is that when it shows up in certain doctrinal areas that we're not convinced the Scripture teaches. So, for instance, Israel to church. Israel is a mixed community, a believing-unbelieving community. The Abrahamic covenant has believing-unbelieving part of that covenant mm -hmm. community. They want to extend that all the way to the church in this present age, not in the future, but in this present age where you and your children are still part of that uh, that church, that mixed community. The problem with that is the biblical evidence for that is not there. And it's also a failure to understand that all of these covenants are coming to fulfillment in the new covenant, that even the Old Testament is anticipating a regenerate people, a mm -hmm. change of what I call you and your children, the genealogical principle. So, so we, instead of saying there is this inauguration of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, we would say, no, what's there is the, is the promise of redemption, the promise of Christ that's anticipating the new covenant, and through the historic covenants, Noahic, Abrahamic, uh, Sinai, Davidic, uh, to the new, they're unfolding that promise. They are, uh, in their own redemptive historical context, governing the people of God, but they're ultimately leading us to the new covenant. So it's a slightly different way of putting the covenants together. It's not putting them under the larger rubric mm -hmm. of the covenant of grace, because, it's, it's again, we're not... 
we're not uh, denying the fact that there's one plan of redemption, but it's the way it works itself out in covenant theology that tends to flatten those covenants or to make the new covenant the same as these old covenants or to make the old covenant almost a version of the new covenant. Of course, they all want to get away from that. They'll all say, no, 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 we're not doing that. But it shows itself in the doctrine of the church and ordinances and so on. Now, dispensational theology, they believe in covenants. Everyone does. I mean, you can't believe the Bible without covenants, but that doesn't govern their thinking the same way as it does in our thought or in, in classic covenant theology or in Reformed Baptist thought. So really, Israel church is crucial to them. Now, again, you have to be very, very careful because they're going to give pushback on this and say, oh, no, no, no. But in many ways, right, uh, Genesis 1 to 11, they all affirm it importance of Adam, but it's really not significant in their theological system. Mm -hmm. Daryl Bach said this, that, that, uh, you know, Adam's important, obviously sets the stage for what happens in Genesis 12, but, but there is no covenant in creation. There is no covenant of works. Uh, This is not theologically significant. This is a huge mistake. And uh, I think that um, in, in, we do have Adam, there is a covenant relationship. He brings sin into the world. They don't deny that, but they don't see the importance of starting in creation the same way with Adam leading us to Christ, uh, the the land promise, Eden leading us to what the new heavens and new earth will be. I mean, that's a way of framing the Bible. So they start in Genesis 12 with, with Abraham. I mean, that's significant for them. And then the promises of the nation, the promises of Israel and the role of Israel. And there's promises that's given to Israel that must continue because they've never, ever been fulfilled fully, mm-hmm. um, even with the coming of Christ. So that in the future, we will have a particularly in one version of dispensationalism, the progressive covenant, the, the progressive dispensational version is that in the future, right, we will have believing nation states dwelling not only in the millennium, but new heavens, and new earth, where Israel as a nation will be in the land, having her promises with other believing. It's all one people, but we have believing nation states that will live in the new heavens, and new earth. And what's driving that is Israel church. So that Israel remains always the same. It's not that Israel points us to Christ or Israel is fulfilled ultimately in the church and so on. It's Israel is Israel as a nation remains what it is. The church is something different. They're related, right? But there is a difference between them. And in the final state, it's nations, it's Gentile believing nations. It's Israel is a believing nation that will then come, you know, that will dwell uh, in the presence of God due to the work of Christ um, in, in the future. So there's some of the differences, right? So, so uh, dispensational theology will be more amenable to, uh, to, to Baptist convictions because they would see a real church difference uh, with, the, with Israel, right? So the church is a yeah. believing entity. Uh, the church has different ordinances uh, and so on. But the reason for that is tied to Israel church, not the way we do it in terms of covenantal unfolding and fulfillment that's now come in Christ in the new covenant. Hmm. Yeah, I think those those distinctions are are really helpful. And and, and so I want to jump now to one that's kind of uh, at least at like the kind of macro level uh, between there. There's kind of that between you know like a Pado Baptist Westminster covenant theology and progressive covenantalism. You have kind of the 1689 you know, federalism, right? And, or reform Baptist federalism. And and so I think at least at the macro level, uh, the, the main, you know, kind of 
disagreement or, or I feel like, you know, as a pastor, kind of the thing that people probably struggle with the most is understanding uh, the, the covenant of grace. How is it different from the, how is it different from Westminster and then, you know, progressive covenantalism, not using that necessarily as, as right. a category, right? Yeah. So, so, so in your, in your opinion, um, you know, as, as a Baptist, what, why is the, you know, progressive covenantal view you think preferable as a theological system? And then maybe what, what's the confusion there for, uh, for some between kind of the, the three, if that, if that question makes sense. I know yeah, there's a couple sure. of pieces no, no. there. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and the 16, you know, the second London Baptist confession, the 1689 confession, uh, I broadly, uh, affirm, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to differ at a couple points and, and I do that not because I not confessional, but I do think that sure. our confessions are, are, uh, you know, wonderful standards, but they're secondary standards to the authority of Scripture, and that Scripture must be governed, you know, how we even understand the confession and provide critique of the confession if necessary. Uh, many of our early confessional standards, Nicaea, Chalcedon, I think, do get things right in terms of uh, the Trinity and Christology. I think there's a few need to tweak. And of course, uh, the reform, you wouldn't have had a reformation unless they uh, tweaked the, the, the Roman Catholic understanding, right? So <laughs> sure. uh, so they had to bring it back to, to Scripture itself. So the 1689 view, I mean, is, is even with the confession, there's difference of Reformed Baptists on how they understand those covenants. So uh, many, there's many Reformed Baptists, one wing of them. This isn't 1689 federalism, but there's a whole wing of them that, that basically follow the standard Westminster formulation of uh, covenant of redemption in eternity, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and then they would just say, well, the Bible just not, does not teach that the church is the same as Israel, and so they would have then Baptist convictions. That's mm-hmm. been a pretty standard Reformed Baptist position. Now, the 1689 Federalists have come, and they're arguing that there was a specific way that the confession is understanding the covenants. And uh, in many ways, it's very close to what we're, we're saying. Um, and and uh, what they're saying is, is that there's covenant of redemption, covenant of works, so all that's in agreement. Uh, and then the covenant of grace, they want to retain that language that comes out of Westminster and they, it comes into the 1689 confession and so on. They want to retain that language, but they then want to apply it uh, solely to the new covenant. So unlike the Westminster that says the covenant of grace includes everything from Genesis 3.15 mm-hmm. and all the historic covenants, they the 1689 Federalists will say, no, it only applies to the new covenant. So what are these Old Testament covenants then? Well, they are anticipatory. They are revelatory. They are prophetic of the coming of the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant. Now, in many ways, that's similar to what uh, what we've been saying with progressive covenantalism. Uh, I, I, I firmly admit that when we put together uh, progressive covenantalism, I didn't do all of that. Uh, the, the historic reform Baptist, uh, I should have done that to all my forefathers in the faith, historians and so on. I didn't do that work. I was more interacting with dispensational and uh, reformed covenant theology. Sure at that point. And so I benefited from Pascal Denault and others, the Renahans and so on, who've laid out some of that, uh, that historic work. So when we were coming to this more from biblical theology and how the Bible works, we were saying something similar, yet we, we do not feel the need to maintain the terminology of the covenant of grace. Now, why not? 
Uh, well, because we, we want to make sure that the, that our, our, our theology is now being consistent with the way the Bible actually is using the language of Scripture and, and putting things together. Mm-hmm. And so the covenant of grace, if it means, you know, tied to the covenant of redemption, the one plan of God that unfolds across the covenants, no problem. But the problem is, is that in, in classic covenant theology, the terminology of the covenant of grace functions in a certain way to ultimately give you their entire system and what the church is and what baptism is and so on. And uh, that's that's a problem because that's not how the Bible is laying out the differences between the covenants and what the new covenant is and what the church is and so on. So it can be misleading term. It can almost beg the question. So you have to sort of say, well, what do you mean by this term? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why even when the Reformed uh, 1689 Federalists want to say it only applies to the New Covenant. Well, I, 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 there's not a whole lot of biblical data for that. Right? I mean, we have the New Covenant, but we don't have terminology of the Covenant of Grace that says this is the New Covenant type of thing. We have the plan of redemption and so on. Now, I'm not against theological terms, right? The word Trinity is a theological category, hypostatic mm-hmm. union. I'm all for that. But I want to make sure my theological terms are being true to the Bible's language as well and true to how the Bible's putting those together. So when I hear 1689 Federalists say the new covenant is the covenant of grace, I understand what they're saying and I'm don't really disagree at that point. Yeah. Uh, I just don't feel it's necessary to use that terminology because it does that. The very terminology is fraught with all kinds of theological positions that require definition anyway. And so we then have to get to that theological point and say, this is what we mean by these terms. This is how they're being used and, and so on. Now, with the 1689 Federalists as well, uh, they will also see that the covenant of works is reduplicated, republished uh, with the mosaic. That, that's that's and that's also a, 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 a group of the Westminster tradition. The Meredith Klein, Michael Horton group mm-hmm. sees that too. Not all of those in covenant theology would agree with that republication thesis, but they would say that uh, the the um, uh, the covenant of works is republished in the mosaic they particularly tie that to the decalogue the ten commandments so they would even tie the decalogue to natural law that uh, adam would have that is then republished in the mosaic covenant and so there then is a strong emphasis on the decalogue being brought right over to all people all places all times and that becomes universal moral law our position is is we basically agree with that, but we run into problems with the, the fourth commandment on the Sabbath. We do not see that the Bible as a whole is giving that kind of Sabbath to Lord's Day transfer and even that the Sabbath is grounded in creation the way they see it as a creation ordinance and so on. So then we have to then say, well, we don't disagree that the Decalogue basically reflects moral law, uh, yet we cannot just simply appeal to the Decalogue, sort of take it out of its uh, Mosaic covenantal context and just plop it over into every place. We have to see ultimately how it's been brought to fulfillment in terms of Christ. And, and, and there is the moral law that's tied to basically nine out of those Ten Commandments are reflected, I think, in creation. I think they're reflected in the covenants. It's reflected in terms of all societies. But the, you run into the issues of the Sabbath. So it's really the Sabbath that raises 
hermeneutical issues of how one thinks about the covenants, how one applies the covenants. So that's a difference. Most 1689 Federalists would be Sabbatarian, and, uh, and we would not be. And so there's differences there. Now, they often misunderstand and say, well, you're denying that uh, the Ten Commandments are eternal moral law. We don't, right? We, we just simply say they're placed, though, within the covenant, that they do reflect uh, love of God and neighbor, which is tied to eternal moral uh, realities type of thing. But the Sabbath, you can't just take them out of context because you run into the Sabbath issue. So our big issue then, the debate then, is over whether the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, whether it continues for all places, all times, all cultures. Uh, one has to argue that if you argue that the Decalogue is that which is you know, in all of its totality is found in creation um, and the Sabbath command is found there as well. Yeah, I think that I think that's really, really helpful and and just clarifying, because I think, you know, especially as a pastor, that's what I kind of run into frequently uh, is, you know, how do I understand the, the, the covenant of grace? And like you mentioned, you know, Israel church relationship, application of uh, the Old Testament to you know, Christians today, particularly as you, as you highlighted the, uh, Sabbath, uh, command and, and, and what does that look like to, to say that, you know, we're, we're now under the, the law of Christ. What does it look like to, uh, see that Christ has fulfilled the law? And so in a certain sense, transformed how, uh, we now apply, uh, eternal moral law. You, you could say right. that it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not like it's no longer eternal <laughs> moral law, but we, we can't just uh, rip it out of its covenantal context and apply it to today without uh, first seeing that in union with Christ, uh, he has fulfilled that. So, so how now do we apply those things as uh, those who are unified uh, to, to Christ as uh, the spirit has applied his work of redemption to us? Yeah, we need to do very carefully, and there's a lot of misunderstanding in talking past one another at this point, because uh, when push comes to shove, we agree more than we disagree, and, and mm -hmm. really the main point of disagreement will come in terms of how we understand uh, the Sabbath command and how that carries through. So so we often, I mean, I've had people charge me with saying, you're denying eternal moral law, you're... We don't do anything of the sort. We we ground, obviously, eternal moral law and ultimately in God's nature himself, right? Mm -hmm. God is the lawgiver. God is the standard. Uh, all the way in creation, we have the great commandment. We have love of God, love of neighbor, right? We are made in the image of God to rule over creation, to relate to one another, and we are like God, which picks up sonship language. We are to love him. So where does the great commandment begin? It begins with Adam, begins in creation. We still have to debate, though, whether there's a Sabbath command there, right? So the basic mm -hmm. Ten Commandments reflect love of God and neighbor. And, but they're also given to the nation of Israel as, a, as part of a covenant. And, and so, they, so you can have eternal moral demand that's for all people, all places, all time, but then spe specificity that is given to Israel as a covenant people. We see that obviously extended beyond the Ten Commandments to food laws and other things like that that aren't universally applicable. But most of the ten, nine of the Ten Commandments are universally morally applicable, but they still function, even the preamble to the Ten Commandments function as I'm the God who took you out of Egypt, right? Well, as we work through the Bible, how do we apply moral law to us today? Well, we ground it in creation, 
That's very, very important, especially in our day where we're losing creation and creation order and male-female mm-hmm. and marriage and family and so on. It's grounded in creation. It's reflected through the covenants, uh, and the Ten Commandments reflect uh, that in terms of most of the of the moral demand. And we see then how it's brought to fulfillment in Christ. So, in my view, the law of Christ involves the whole Bible, right? We yeah. And when we think of when we think of um, uh, not being under the law, we have to define these terms very carefully. That doesn't mean we're not under moral demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Paul speaks of not being under the law, predominantly he's saying we're not under the old covenant. Right? The covenant as a covenant has been brought to fulfillment. We are under the new covenant. We do not say that we are under the old covenant. The old covenant has was a temporary covenant that's been brought to fulfillment in the new. And that's true of all the Old Testament covenants in that sense, right? Yeah. I mean, the Abrahamic covenant has been brought to fulfillment in Christ. The Davidic covenant has been brought to fulfillment in Christ uh, and so on. So we need to say we are not under the Mosaic law as a covenant, but we are certainly in what it teaches as scripture, right? We have to carefully then say, well, what applies to us in light of the coming of Christ and what he has achieved and what he has accomplished. So we will live very similarly, but it will be on a few places, uh, particularly Sabbath. What do we do with the Sabbath? And even there, I sometimes challenge my Sabbatarian brothers and sisters with, uh, you know, do you actually bring that Old Testament Sabbath? They usually bring the principles of it or they bring the sort of the main instruction over, but leave a lot of the extraneous stuff. But then hermeneutically, what's your justification for doing so, right? So we would see in Genesis 2 with the seventh day, very, very significant. There's no morning and evening. We would see this as God entering into enjoyment and ultimately covenantal rest with his creation that's disrupted at the fall that the sabbath command in the old testament becomes typological of looking back to that but also forward to a recovery of that rest that's now come in christ so there is a lord's day in the new testament we do not forsake our uh, assembling together yet the sabbath we have entered that rest right we have entered that covenantal rest in christ now and we will enjoy it uh, forever in the glorified new heavens and new earth but that's that's a slightly different way of understanding how that fits together and 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 it's and it's tied to some of these hermeneutical issues of making sure we don't just take the 10 commandments out of their context seeing them in their covenantal context how they look back to creation forward to the to the new uh, new covenant and so on yeah absolutely i think that's really helpful in in clarifying uh, there so i appreciate you sharing that with us and, and maybe before i ask you about resources just you know, a quick sketch, another common thing that that kind of comes up is, you know, Israel and church relationship uh, distinction between, right. you know, like a Westminster uh, dispensational progressive, you know, covenantal. Yeah. And then just kind of how uh, the people of God and, and baptism kind of fit into that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every everyone has to say something different about Israel Church, right? I mean, so again, you if you, you have to be careful, you don't overplay the differences, but it's sure. how you say it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Westminster, the traditional uh, classic covenant theology would say, tied to the one covenant of grace, right? To the substance of that covenant tied to the one people of God. So, um, most. Uh, of the best of dispensationalism believes in the one people of God. We believe in the one people of God. Westminster believes in the one people of God. But they would tie the one people of God now to that one covenant of grace so that Israel structurally and how it's constituted 
as a, what I call a mixed community, right? So you have believer, unbeliever within it. You have those in the covenant, not necessarily of the covenant and so on. And of course that gets tied to bringing the children into it, tied to circumcision, the sign of the covenant and so on. Uh, that's there. They will then see, because it's all under the one covenant of grace, they will see the church at this present time structured the same way. So that we're still a mixed entity. Yes, there's changes that we're an international community and not just tied to uh, Jewish community and so on. So obviously they admit differences, yet the mixed nature of that community remains the same. So that you know, circumcision now uh, is changes to baptism. There's an administrative change, but it, they both signify the same reality. Mm-hmm. Namely, that God has made promises. If you believe those promises, these are the seal of the promises to you, but you still must believe. So they do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Uh, so there's there's how they're putting Israel church. So Israel church, church is is a greater reality than Israel in the sense of, uh, of the one people of God, yet constitutionally and structurally, it's still a mixed community um, and, 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 and so on. And then in the future, obviously, we'll have a believing entity. So what Baptists think is mm-hmm. all future. So they say then you're, you, you've brought the future too much into the present. Well, I don't yeah. think so, but, but that's <laughs> what they'll are. Now, now, in the dispensational view, right, they'll have a believing view of the church, very similar to Baptist thought, and that's why many dispensationalists are Baptists, yet Yet Israel and church are two separate things. So Israel remains the national ethnic people forever, and particularly that national emphasis. They must remain a nation. They must have promises to them as a nation, uh, which are realized in, in the future in terms of land, the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, and so on. Uh, both Westminster and ourselves and Reformed Baptists uh, would say, no, I mean, ethnicity, I mean, uh, in the church, you will have people from every tribe, nation, people, tongue. You'll have Jewish uh, believers that are there. Yeah. But they're brought into the church is the nation. The church is the kingdom of priests. The church is, in some sense, the eschatological Israel, the fulfillment of Israel in and through Christ. Right? So that's very important to, to, to see that. Um, and so there's where differences lie. And of course, where that shows up then is the church uh, under the new covenant is a believing entity. They're, mm-hmm. We are united to Christ. To be in Christ in terms of the new covenant is to be born of the spirit, is to be justified, is to be sanctified, is to be adopted children. Uh, we, are to, we are the temples of God. Old Testament Israel was never called a temple. Uh, they had to go to a temple, right? Yet mm-hmm. we now are the dwelling of God. That's the entire church, both individually that's true of us as Christians and corporately it's true of us. So this is where it's going to really differ with Westminster. So, you know, many dispensationalists will agree with that believing sense of the church, a regenerate church, Reformed Baptist certainly will in 1689, yet uh, the dispensationalists will have it for slightly different reasons tied sure. to Israel church. But that's why we would say baptism does not signify the same thing that circumcision did. Circumcision brought one in externally to the covenant community. It pointed to the need for new hearts, Baptism doesn't point the need for a new heart. It speaks of one united to Christ who has a new heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who have come to faith, repented of their sins. Uh, you cannot change the meaning of baptism to look proleptically uh, or give a promise of something future. It, it, it's speaking of the new covenant realities that are ours now. 
and uh, and so that's where there's there's the difference between the old Westminster tradition and then Baptists and and again a lot of commonality on the nature of the church and baptism with dispensationalism and Reformed Baptist and so on. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent, and I think that's a, a good place for us to kind of stop this uh, conversation and then maybe move to just a couple of couple of resources. And so last question I, I want to ask you now is uh, I'm going I'm to link to Kingdom Through Covenant and Progressive Covenantalism in, in the show notes. Um, w- would there be anything else, a few other resources for listeners to check out on Progressive Covenantalism or, or maybe even uh, some, you know, authors, scholars that are uh, putting progressive covenantalism in, into practice in you know biblical theological works, and, and then maybe in yep. what order would you kind of recommend someone uh, kind of read them to get kind of the full scope and feel for uh, progressive covenantalism? Yeah, yeah the um, uh, the most popular version of it is what uh, former student of mine and now fellow pastor um, in in Greenville, South Carolina, Trent Hunter, and I put together. Uh, Christ from beginning to end, and that's just an introduction to how to read the Bible, how to put the Bible together, what the Bible is. So that's the simplest, mm-hmm. and it actually walks through the covenants and so on. It's, you'll never hear the term progressive covenantalism or anything else sure. in there, but it's it's giving you a kind of overview of how the Bible fits for a very simple, you know, layman um, beginning Bible study and 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 that kind of thing. So Christ from beginning to end. Then I think uh, uh, we put Kingdom Through Covenant uh, in terms of a more popular version, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants, uh, mm-hmm. published by Crossway 2015. And then the larger version of Kingdom Through Covenant. You mentioned the edited version uh, of, called Progressive Covenantalism, a number of essays that uh, all of that will explain. There's a four views book, uh, Brent Parker and Richard Lucas edited that put together Covenant Dispensational and ourselves in a variety of dispensationalism. We were sorry that we didn't put the 1689 in there, but, um, uh, you know, there's four views there. So you can see Mm -hmm. a discussion of the views side by side with one another and interaction with one another. Uh, Other people to look to look for Jason Derushi at Midwestern Seminary um, is doing Old Testament work and 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 speaks of in a variety of places uh, how to apply the law and so on. He's working pretty much from where we're coming from, maybe not exactly in everything, but but overall, yes, Uh, uh, the the book, 40 Questions on Biblical Theology that uh, Jason did with Andy Nacelli and uh, Oren Martin is basically working with a progressive covenantal view. Tom Schreiner has a very excellent little book on covenant. It's part of the short studies in biblical theology with Crossway. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent version. He's giving, you know, our view. I mean, we're, I mean, Tom's older than me. I'm indebted to him in terms of his work. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of commonality we teach as colleagues here at the seminary. So anything Tom does on, on, uh, on uh, New Testament commentaries, and that's particularly that book on covenant is, is excellent. Those are all great resources uh, on, on the view. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And then I, I lied. That wasn't the last question, but um, your your first volume of your systematic theology comes out early next year, correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and is uh, do you have anything in there that's kind of tying, you know, progressive covenantalism into systematic theology and, and what's that look like? Yeah, no, it, it will. It, it's, it's going to be, that's one of the 
sort of distinctives of it. So it was supposed to be one volume, and it's now turned into two. I'm very yeah. thankful for <laughs> B&H to be able to do that. So in the first volume, you will actually have a whole section on the theological systems where, you know, how do we put the Bible together? And I'm trying then in volume two as well to be able to go from the whole Bible and how it fits together to then theological formulation. So how, what do we say about who God is from the whole Bible? How do we say, you know, what do we say about humans and Christ and his work and the church and so on? So even in volume one, even though volume two, I'm finishing up, uh, volume one will have those systems in there. It'll discuss Reformed Baptist 1689 federalism, uh, you know, interaction with that, you know, briefly, right? And then I'll develop mm-hmm. that in particularly ecclesiology, eschatology, and other areas. But the whole covenantal structure runs through the entire two volumes. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. And, and Dr. Wellam, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with me about progressive covenantalism. I, I pray that it's fruitful and helpful for, for God's people. And so thank you very much for joining me today. Always a delight and always remember, right, we bring all of our thought back to Scripture and, um, and, and we're not that much different yet. There are important differences that uh, we need to continue to talk about and resolve for the sake of the unity of the church and the glory of the gospel. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Blessings to you. Today we have a special giveaway. We're giving away two tickets to the 2023 Pactum Conference in Omaha, Nebraska on October 6th and 7th. The conference theme is All Things New and it's being promoted as a prophecy conference like no other. Uh, Details are at thepactum.org, but to win free admission uh, for two, be the first one to contact me and I'll hook you up with some tickets to the Pactum Conference and I'll be there. Would love to uh, meet and connect with you. Listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Share it with your friends and give it a good review, whether written or just clicking some stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others find this show that may be interested in gospel-centered resources like this one. Also, if you have an idea for an episode or someone you'd like for me to interview, please reach out to me and let me know. Thank you, and until next time.